Today, we are continuing our Living Generously series by studying together the words of Jesus found in the book of Luke. So open your Bible or your Bible app and find Luke chapter 12. At the beginning of this chapter, we're told that Jesus and his disciples find themselves in the middle of a vast crowd. Thousands and thousands of people have gathered and come to hear uh, Jesus teach. And it's in the middle of his teaching where we're going to pick up in verse 13. Luke writes, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Let me read that last line one more time. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In just one sentence, Jesus speaks directly to what has become one of the most dangerous and detrimental four-letter words in the English language, more. It's no secret to any of us that over the past century or so, America has become a consumeristic culture oriented around the idea of wanting, desiring, striving after, and maintaining more. And you know what? It all kind of started with Freud. I know you might be thinking, huh? Well, okay, stick with me. We're going to spend a few minutes doing a, a quick history lesson. You see, Sigmund Freud was one of the first modern thinkers to disagree with the Enlightenment's claim that humans are rational. You know, the whole, like, I think, therefore I am view of humanity. Freud said, "Mm, not so fast. We're rational, yes, but we make all sorts of irrational decisions every day. We're run by what he calls our unconscious drive, a kind of automatic impulse in our body, what what neuroscientists now call our animal brain, or what the writers of the New Testament, you know, a couple thousand years ago, referred to as our flesh. You see, Freud believed that human beings are far more vulnerable to manipulation from outside sources and even self-deception from within than any of us would care to admit. But you see, it wasn't until after the First World War that Freud's ideas began to take root in American society. You see, that was thanks to his nephew, Edward Bernays. Bernays returned home from war with a question. Hey, if if propaganda can be used to shape people during war, to to feed into their their desires and their fears and their anxiety, could those same tactics be used to shape people during peace? So Bernays took his uncle's ideas surrounding this unconscious drive people have to Madison Avenue, where he became a pioneer in the field of public relations. And he's even referred to as the father of American advertising. Although I bet you've never heard of him like me. And that's intentional. You know, in his book called Propaganda, Bernays said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. 
We are governed. Our minds are molded, our taste formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. It's wild to think that that was written in the 1920s. And you see, as America came out of the Great Depression and World War II, there was this intentional alliance between politicians, bankers, corporations, and advertisers to work together to make Americans buy more stuff. And it was actually super helpful in bolstering our economy. But it also led to a drastic shift in America from being a needs-based culture to a desires-based culture. And it didn't take long at all before massive consumption and this ever-growing desire for more and more became a normal part of everyday life. This is from an article written in 1955, you know, for the really super popular journal of retailing. Yeah, I, I had never heard of that either. You know, it's a magazine with a pretty specific audience. Are you in retailing? I have the magazine for you. But this article said, our enormously productive economy depends demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. You can't make this stuff up. The very meaning of significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressure upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his patterns of food serving, his hobbies. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. And now, man, nearly 70 years later, this is just the air that we breathe. They say on average, we see 5,000 advertisements per day and the vast majority of which are aimed not at our prefrontal cortex where our rational thinking lies, but at our unconscious drives, right? All in an effort to manipulate us, to think things, want things, buy things, consume things, discard things, and then buy them again. And it's working, right? It's why every September I have to resist the urge to replace my perfectly good phone with one that's just a little bit better. Here's some stats that shocked me when I was studying for this sermon. The average American home has over 300,000 items in it. That's three, zero, 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 right? That's a lot of stuff. 3.1 of the world's children live in America but American kids own 40% of the toys consumed globally. The average uh, balance on a credit card in America is $6,200, and the average American has four credit cards. So you do the math. There are nearly 50,000 storage unit facilities in America. 
to give you like a reference point for just how much that is, there are less than 15,000 Starbucks in America. That means there are three times more storage unit facilities than there are Starbucks in our country. Like, that's ridiculous. I feel like there's a Starbucks on every corner. And all of that equates to about 7.3 square feet of storage unit space for every single American. Think about it. If our storage units were homes, we could easily, effortlessly house the entire unsheltered population in our country. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, please hear me out. I'm not trying to shame or guilt anyone by sharing these stats. I'm simply trying to paint a picture of how we collectively, as a culture over the past century, have become so focused and dependent on stuff. We all know that cliche line, like the most important things in life aren't things. So good, right? Heartwarming. We know that's true. Yet we still constantly fall for the lie that more is better. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we make our lives about the abundance of possessions. And over time, our lives become so crammed full of stuff that we begin to mistake wants and desires as being needs. Where has all of this desire for more left us? Are we any happier for it? All evidence suggests the answer is no. Well-being has been on the decline in our country since 1952. I think we have more than enough data to conclude that Jesus, shocker, was right all along. Life, the good life that Jesus offers us does not exist in an abundance of possessions. So how do we find freedom from this suffocating mentality that more is better? Is there a way to overcome the endless cycle of desire and instead find contentment and margin and peace and joy? I believe the answer is yes. So let's look back at Luke chapter 12 and let's see what Jesus wants to teach us today. Look back at verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on guard. Notice the double warning to drive home the point. He's saying, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Okay, the word greed here, it denotes this insatiable desire for wealth, which I think is how we commonly think of greed. But it also can mean a hunger for advanced social standing. A greedy person isn't simply someone who desires a lot of money for the sake of having money but someone who desires a lot of money for the sake of acceptance, for the sake of power, for uh, the sake of greater status, or even for security and comfort in life. So Jesus warns us to be on guard against all kinds of greed. And he says, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You know, the way this sentence is written in the Greek, it would more literally read as, you do not exist in your possessions. You see, Jesus isn't saying that all possessions are bad and we need to feel guilty whenever we want new things. No, rather he's saying is that that's not where the good life is found. Your life, the way in which you were created and designed to live by God, it does not exist in what you have in your money or in your stuff. 
And then Jesus unpacks this thought more with a story. Look at verse 16. It says, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Okay, notice uh, that it says the ground yielded, not that the rich man yielded. No, this abundant harvest, it was a byproduct of God's generosity of the rain, the sun, the hard work of the laborers in the field. And the idea is that all of that wealth was a gift from God. In verse 17, the man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now it's lost a little bit in translation, but the Greek emphasizes that the man is talking to himself. He's using words like I and my over and over and over again. This is Jesus's humorous way of saying the man is totally self-absorbed. What shall I do with all of my extra money and stuff, right? Sounds like a good problem to have. Now, remember though, this is an ancient agrarian communal society, okay? It's not a modern industrial individualistic society like we live in. And so this is actually a rhetorical question in Jesus's day. What shall I do with all of my extra money? Share it with the poor. You see, there was an expectation, both theologically and socially back then, on the rich to care for the poor. But look at verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Okay, so this farmer, he experiences an incredible harvest. He, he can't even fit all of it in his barns. And so he weighs a few options. He says, okay, you know, I could, I could build additional barns, but you know, that's gonna take up valuable land that could be used in the future to expand my crops and bring in more income. So I don't wanna do that. Uh, I could sell my surplus, you know, but that probably, I, I wouldn't make as much money since it's been a good harvest year all around. The market's gonna be more saturated. So instead, he decides to tear down his current barns and just build bigger ones. Problem solved. Stockpiling his stuff now not only makes him feel more secure, but you know, whenever food does become more scarce, others in the village are gonna become more dependent on him, which will provide him with more economic power, greater social status. You know, according to the world standards, this just sounds like good business practice, right? Verse 19. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, security in life was what was most important to this man. So of course, it made sense to save everything, to store up his many possessions for himself so that he could be set, he could have financial security and live comfortably for many years. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, you fool. That is not something I want to be called by God. Oftentimes in the Bible, the term fool is used to signify someone whose practices deny God. Someone whose actions, the way in, they, in which they live their life, the way in which they make the decisions and act, it doesn't acknowledge and illuminate the reality of God, but instead it ignores or it denies the reality of God. You see, this man sought to secure himself in his future, yet he did so without reference to God. He didn't consider that his life was on loan from God. He failed to account for how God might want him to spend his money or handle his possessions. 
What would it look like to handle my money and possessions in a way that acknowledges God? Instead of just doing my own thing, spending money however I think is best without even pausing to think how God might want me to spend it. Like that's an interesting question to unpack, isn't it? Like practically, what would that look like? Imagine what might shift if we ask ourselves that question every day. Imagine what might shift if every two weeks when I got my paycheck, I asked, how could I save this money in a way that acknowledges God? How could I spend this money in a way that acknowledges God? What might shift if whenever I'm shopping online or walking through a store, I ask, how could I purchase things in a way that acknowledges God? Or what might shift if when I'm sitting in my house or driving in my car, I asked, how could I use these possessions in a way that acknowledges God? If this life is all there is, if my own comfort and security or the comfort and security of my family is what's most important, and if I'm responsible for ensuring that that's achieved, then of course, I'm going to save my money. I'm going to hoard my money and possessions. Of course, I'm going to handle them in such a way that looks out for my own best interests. That would be the wise thing to do. But the reality is this life isn't all there is. And my personal comfort and security isn't what's most important. And if I truly believe that God is who I say he is, that he's good, he's loving, he's trustworthy, he's our provider, then shouldn't the way I save money, the way I buy things, the way I handle my possessions reflect that? You see, having possessions is not what made this wealthy man a fool. It was the heart he had towards his possessions that made him foolish. He saw his possessions, his wealth, as being his and for him, as opposed to being for the needs of those around him as well. He viewed his possessions as being the source of his security in life instead of trusting God to be the source of his security in life. And as a result, God says, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Again, that's another rhetorical question here. And the answer is no one. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You see, Jesus's point in all of this is that the good life of the gospel of Jesus is not found in surplus wealth or early retirement or the pursuit of security and comfort. The good life of the gospel of Jesus is found in a life of self-giving love with God and others in his kingdom. And this is why Jesus talks so, so much about the topic of money. You know, a little over 25% of all of Jesus's teachings in the gospels were on the topic of money or possessions. But you see, Jesus didn't preach about money that regularly because he wanted people to give him money. He wasn't doing a capital campaign or raising funds for his nonprofit. No, he was just very aware of the soul's inner dynamic. We consume things and then things consume us. They consume our heart 
And so when Jesus brings up this topic over and over and over again, it's not because he's after our money. It's because he's after our heart. This is why Jesus says to his followers later on in chapter 12, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's that's what you need most in life. The kingdom of God, it's already at hand. So sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure, whatever it is that's important to you, whatever is your focus, that's what has your heart. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot. It's impossible. You cannot serve both God and money. Money and possessions will take over our heart unless we take an active stand against its gravitational pull. Money and possessions will take over our heart unless we take an active stand against its gravitational pull. So here's my challenge to us all. And maybe you want to write this down and put it on a post-it on your mirror or uh, make a note and save it as the backdrop of your phone. Spend some time between now and the end of this year experimenting in taking an active stand against the gravitational pull of money and possessions and see for yourself if Jesus was right. Now, I'm not saying we all need to go out and sell all we have tomorrow, although Jesus has said that before to people. But I do think we each can start right where we're at and begin to take steps forward in this. We can ask ourselves, talk about with someone else, the question of how can I practically take an active stand against the gravitational pull of money and possessions in my life. How can I do that? How can we do that? Here's some, here's some ideas to maybe get the juices flowing for you. Uh, we could clear out some of our possessions. What if between now and the end of the year, you set a goal of clearing out 100, 500, 1,000 items from your home? And I'm not talking about just getting rid of junk or things you no longer want or need, but actually intentionally parting with things that do still spark joy for you. It's a way we can remind ourselves that we own our possessions, our possessions do not own us. Uh, Another idea is we could commit to giving experiential gifts this holiday season, instead of just buying material things. Gifts that provide quality time, intentionality, memory making, instead of just things that are going to fill our home with more stuff. We could trade in the car that we're leasing for an older model. It might not be as fun to drive, but it also might not require a need for a lease, and it'll get us one step closer to being debt-free. We could commit to buying only consumables for a month, you know, just groceries, cleaning supplies, things like that, the bare necessities. You know, the simple bare necessities, forget, okay, you get it. But this will remind us that what we need 
is actually a lot less than what we think we need. Or maybe we could not eat out for a week or a month. And then instead, we take that money we'd spend on eating out and we use it to buy grocery or restaurant gift cards that we can give to people in need that we encounter throughout our day. Man, there's a plethora of different ways we can live this out. Get creative. Have fun with it. If you have a roommate, a spouse, or kids, or your community group, come up with ideas together. Hold each other accountable to what you commit to. Whatever you do, the goal is to do something, right? To be active in standing against the pull that money and possessions have on us and instead doing things that acknowledge God's presence in our life and our trust that he, and not our money, not our stuff, is the true source of our security, of our comfort, and our peace in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you are a good God, a loving God who cares for us, who sees us, who knows our every need, and you provide it. God, I pray that you would help us take a stand, an active stand against the gravitational pull that money and possessions has on our hearts. God, I pray that as we go through the rest of 2021, that you would help us be intentionally aware of how we're spending money, how we're saving money, how we're navigating and using our possessions, and that we would make the shifts necessary so that we could be a church, we could be a people who use our money and our possessions in a way that acknowledge you in a way that illuminates you and who you are to those around us, Lord. And when we do that, Lord, let us find our hope and our trust in you and not in our things, that you are the true source of our security in this life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Wait, wait, before you go, three things. First, please consider becoming one of Cornerstone Fellowship's financial partners. Your donations will ensure that you'll be able to continue enjoying helpful, and hopefully life-changing messages like the one you just watched. And number two, please share the link to this message with anyone who you know needs it or will be blessed by it, or post the link to your own personal social platforms. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted whenever we post more content. Thanks for watching.